and welcome to the ACR Bulletin Podcast, the show where we examine the latest trends affecting radiology. I'm your host, Chris Hobson, and today's discussion will center on lung cancer awareness. Since Lung Cancer Awareness Month is observed every November, we thought we'd invite two lung cancer advocates onto the show to discuss the merits of raising awareness around this disease. Heidi Nafman Anda is a lung cancer survivor who has who was diagnosed with stage 3A non-small cell lung cancer in October of 2018. Heidi is a certified fitness trainer and holds a BA in psychology from UCLA and a master of science degree in health education from St. Joseph's University. Pierre Anda, MD, MPH, is a recently retired internal medicine primary care physician and is Heidi's husband and caregiver. He, re- he received his medical degree from the Medical College of Pennsylvania, which is now currently known as Drexel, Drexel University College of Medicine, and completed his residency in internal medicine at UCLA. It's a real pleasure speaking with both of you today. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Well, to get us started, Heidi, I thought it would be a, a good uh, a good starting place to maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, including how you became involved in lung cancer awareness to begin with. Well, being a lifelong health enthusiast, health educator, and a fitness trainer, um, married to a primary care physician, my family and I were just blindsided by my stage 3A lung cancer diagnosis five years ago. And what was really scary about that was I had no symptoms at all. Um, I had just finished doing a stair mill for about an hour, never getting short of breath or anything. And this was an incidental finding while um, looking for another, well, you know, doing another um, workup for a different health um, reason. And we were just also shocked. And then what I really didn't expect, though, was to not have a community at all in the beginning, no support networks whatsoever. Um, Pierre's colleagues were the ones who were my physicians, very, very nice people. But when I would ask, you know, where is the support? Um, They said, oh, we just don't do anything. And as time went by, and I learned that November was Lung Cancer Awareness Month, um, you know, like a year or two into this, and there were no plans from the cancer centers or, you know, cancer centers across the country, having now met people online through um, a Zoom community during the pandemic, I just really became outraged. And I thought, is this because of a stigma? Um, Is it because, you know, why is it different that my cancer originated in my lung that I'm treated differently? And not just me, but entire community of people. And that reminded me of how stigma did not really get in the way um, in later years of the HIV AIDS community. Um, I worked with this community in Los Angeles in the early 90s. And People made this disease human, telling the stories, becoming loud and visual. I remember the quilt on the, um, you know, at the nation's capital, and this gave people a voice. They were getting together, telling stories. And I've also heard that lung cancer hasn't been able to get their, um, you know, stories out because people died too quickly. Well, people with AIDS were dying very quickly, and it was their caregivers and the medical community standing up and telling the stories and the medical community backing up that this, you know, true could happen to anybody. And I feel this is the same recipe for lung cancer. So here we go. Um, repeating history. Well, and that stigma is so interesting. You bring that up and, and we will delve into that a little bit more, uh, in a few minutes, because I think that that is kind of it one, it one sense in which, um, lung cancer screening stands apart from the others. So, but I also, um, you know, and I, I do want to find out a little bit more about, you know, how specifically you're engaged around lung cancer wellness, uh, awareness. Uh, but, uh, first Heidi, I w- also wanted to ask you to please provide some background on the disease itself. Um, because as you said, it's not as high profile as the others, uh, in many people's minds. 
online. So maybe if you could talk about how prevalent it is and whether uh, medicine is, has made any progress in mitigating it over the years. Yeah. So I'm embarrassed to say that as a health educator, I didn't really have much background on lung cancer myself. What I had learned, not only as a child growing up, but in graduate studies was don't smoke and this doesn't happen to you. And so this was just being addressed in a preventative way where prevention and other cancers seems to be defined as let's screen, catch it early, and then you have a better chance. So the more I looked at this and, and then realized, you know, through my readings that lung cancer was the number one cancer killer, killing more people than breast, colon, and prostate cancers combined every year for decades. We're talking about, about 235,000 people diagnosed every year. That comes down to about 650 people a day. And the mortality rate, I mean, about 135,000 people die every year from lung cancer, that how can it be responsible to not come forward and talk about this, whether you're a healthcare provider or a patient? And we are actually very private people. I am an introvert at heart, but this is worth it. This is worth coming out taking responsibility that our voices need to be heard. This happened in breast cancer. If you didn't see the patients, you didn't see the survivors and you didn't see the medical community backing up, the breast cancer could happen to anyone. AIDS could happen to anyone. We have that happening now in lung cancer and we can move the needle here. We can. Yeah. Uh, to your question, have, have medicines um, started to uh improve things for people with the diagnosis? Absolutely. I mean, within the past five years has been an exponential increase in the number of new treatments. Uh, there's also a very effective screening test uh, and early detection can certainly help them tab, but there's still a, a long way to go. Five-year survival rate for uh, lung cancer is around 23%. You know, breast cancer and prostate cancer, fortunately, are up to 90% survival rates, uh, five-year survival rates. And when I was diagnosed five years ago, I was told I had about four to six months to live. I had no symptoms. I couldn't even wrap my head around this and that I had possibly an 18% chance of living five years. So now it's up to 23%. So we're definitely headed in the right direction. I'm really grateful for that, but we can do so much better. That's so interesting. And I, I'm so, so grateful you're humanizing this because in my work, I'll, I'll, this is a disclosure. I work a little bit on, on issues and campaigns surrounding lung cancer screening. And it's, it's so nice to, to see a human face put on that. I, de I deal so many, so much with numbers and literature yeah. and thank you. We're really grateful for you all putting a, a, a face on this. So, so Dr. Anda, um, you were talking there about, um, you know, progress over the years. I was wondering about your, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about your background in medicine and, and, and I think it's, probably obvious to everyone how you became such an advocate for lung cancer awareness, but had you had any prior experience in that space at all beforehand, or is this fairly no, new territory for you? Or Relatively new in the sense I, I retired about two and a half years ago uh, after practicing primary care medicine as a general internist for 30 years, but I also had uh, some training in public health and I had an interest in preventive medicine. So I did have some exposure to lung cancer screening, but I have to tell you, uh, after Heidi's diagnosis, I was both, uh, you know, shocked and a bit ashamed somewhat about uh, the deficits in, in my knowledge base. And I did see an opportunity uh, for me in particular, given my background in primary care, 
um, to somehow uh, be a force in promoting lung cancer screening, particularly amongst primary care physicians. Uh, the majority of people who are referred for lung cancer screening are, are, are um, that occurs through their primary care provider, uh, physicians, nurse practitioners. And currently with the national rates of lung cancer screening hovering about 6%, uh, there's just such a great opportunity to promote more screening. There's 14 million people now in the United States who qualify. And we really got to uh, kind of follow in the footsteps of uh, breast cancer screening. You know, in, in many states now, 70, 80 percent uh, colon cancer uh, screening is is also uh, vastly better than, than um, lung cancer screening. But that's uh, it can be done. Hmm. Yeah. And for, I mean, I'm just speculating here, but for every person who qualifies for it, there's probably other people who, who would like to get the screening, but just don't qualify. So I know that, so there's, so that's a, adds another layer onto the challenge probably, but. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right that the current uh, guidelines, the most frequently, I think, um, reference ones are the United States Preventive Service Task Force guidelines do have some fairly strict uh, eligibility criteria. Obviously, they're looking for the highest risk, risk population. But of course, right. you know, we know 15 to 20% of people being diagnosed with lung cancer now have no known risk factors. That's why Heidi and I are really also advocating for more research, mm -hmm. uh, for better screening tests, uh, greater specificity, greater sensitivity, and, and perhaps uh, not as, uh, let's say, complex as a, as a low-dose scan. And there is research now ongoing, looking at some biomarkers perhaps to risk stratify people. So again, it's, it's, it's a matter of really, let's get the eligibles uh, currently uh, screened, but let's also continue to push for better and more effective screening tests. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, again, I think about how other cancers, we want to catch them early and that's considered prevention. In mm. lung cancer, it's don't smoke. This doesn't happen to you. But what about let's catch it early. Let's hear about screening more. It needs to be promoted so people know it exists. And doctors need to refer the eligible. So, you know, we really are making a lot of noise about this because it is totally unacceptable mm -hmm. for a medical community to ignore, you know, the best way to prevent something. Of course, we want to, you know, promote smoking cessation or not getting started for a variety of diseases and well-being. But that's not the only piece of the puzzle with, with lung cancer. Yeah, it's so interesting. You're you're I don't want to say you're working in the background, but you're you're working um just to you know, it's, it seems like parallel tracks you're working on to me and, and please disabuse me of this if, if this is a misunderstanding, but it seems like you're trying to advocate for, you know, different kind of policies and things while also uh, having, you know, kind of raising awareness uh, publicly. So there's the, there's the kind of nuts and bolts of let's, let's get these, you know, certain things passed. Let's, let's, let's make progress medically, obviously, but also let's, let's raise awareness. So uh, that's, oh, I'm sorry. I was good. Yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Rand, if you were going to. Oh no no! I was agreeing with you. Oh was, okay. I well, yeah, I won't. <laughs> well, because, yeah, I won't. Don't, I won't dissuade you me. from that interpretation. <laughs> well, it's so interesting because that kind of leads into my next question about the White Ribbon Project, which you all founded and 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 you pioneered. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that now, which is the more public facing uh, raising awareness portion of of your work. So. Um, 
Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of members of our audience are already familiar with it. So, but but for those who aren't, I'm um, Heidi. I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about you know what the white ribbons are, what they represent, and kind of the purpose they serve. So for me, the day it was created, there was no premeditation behind it. I felt humiliated by the response of the cancer center that was lighting up buildings in you know the cancer awareness color for those months, and I had seen in September. The building was lit red for blood cancer awareness. I asked, wow, this is amazing. Could you, you know, tell me what you're going to do for lung cancer awareness? Will you light the building white? And the response I got was, you know, just so disrespectful and humiliating that we have lights that are in the parking lot every night. Those are white. We turn them on. And that means we acknowledge this every day of the year. And I thought to myself again, why is it okay to treat me like this? Because my cancer just happened to originate in my lungs. If it originated somewhere else, I would be getting empathy and compassion. But here I'm just getting dismissed or ignored. And I had this literal scream and in front of my house when I saw that email. And I said to Pierre, I just wish you would make me a big white ribbon out of wood that we could throw in the front door and I could scream to my community that I had lung cancer. I didn't feel ashamed of that. I want to talk about it. And they should know that too, because they could be at risk as well. Mm. This one ribbon then, um, you know, went viral is a very, you know, shortening down the story a lot on social media. And before we knew it, we were all over the country, cancer centers wanted them. And now we're all over the world. And I thought, why did people want this when I put this on social media? And they were suddenly feeling confident to talk about this. Somehow this ribbon, it was a symbol that we didn't have before. Um, Again, I started, you know, I was diagnosed in October of 2018 and started treatment in November. And I remember thinking, okay, where's all the lung cancer stuff when I'm in radiation every day or in the infusion lounge? It was nothing, nothing, nothing. And, and I just watched the whole world turn pink in October. So I think lung cancer survivors and caregivers started to hold on to this, like, wow, there's finally something that we can relate to and now know that we are not alone. And we started signing the back of these and we were getting, and other people would sign them as they helped us build these. And that became one of the really important pieces of this ribbon. Not only did it scream awareness on the front, but on the back, it proved that there was a community out there. Mm. How could there not be a community for the number one cancer killer? So there are people out there and this is helping us find each other now. And you said you signed it literally the back when you would send them out. Yeah, that's that's humanizing. I like that. It's not just, mm-hmm. hey, we made this in a factory. I think Dr. Andu, you said, made the very first one, right? With, yeah, well, he's made bar- thousands since. Thousands, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, both of us. Hi, Heidi, yeah, I make Heidi, them too. Heidi cuts oh, wow. Up. We have a few other advocates who, oh. who are making them, but uh, it, it's still uh, primarily handmade. Wow. That's completely handmade. That's actually a good uh, metaphor for for the whole movement. It sounds like yeah. <laughs> just yeah. do it yourself. Yeah, and, and again, yeah. we've had a lot of help from other lung cancer advocates and caregivers. Um, so we're 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 grateful for the co- being able to collaborate with many people who've helped. Interesting. Help and we have had feedback from patients who have said, "I didn't realize this was wood," oh. and when they <laughs> open it, it's like, "Wow." 
somebody spent time to make this. It's handcrafted. It's not perfect. They're all a little different because they are handmade, sure. just like people are mm-hmm. different. And then that signature. So for them, it was like, wow, we must not be worthless people. Somebody mm, cares right? to spend time to make it and ship it. Um, and we have never charged anybody for these ribbons. Oh, that's we so didn't want somebody to feel that they couldn't have one because again, this could be a financially destructive disease for people. And here to me, it was a gift that they wanted one because that Mm -hmm. meant they were going to do something with it. And there's a spectrum of advocacy here. Not everybody wants to work a hundred hours a week, like we do on this project and some people having it and putting it on the door. And that is the scream to their community. I want to talk about this. Mm. Um, That's advocacy too. Pressing a share button on a social media post that the White Ribbon Project makes. That's advocacy too. So there's room for everyone and every stage of lung cancer, every type. And doesn't matter if you have a smoking history or not. We need people with smoking histories to come out and not be ashamed to tell their stories. Mm. They are human beings. Smoking, tobacco addiction, this is nothing anyone deserves or creates on their own. Mm. No one deserves cancer. And we need to humanize people who smoke, people who don't smoke, people who get lung cancer. It's it's the number one cancer killer. No excuse to be quiet. Right. Well, and, and I love that you send them out. And it's like, uh, I, I feel like the, the the initial point at which you send these out to people is the start of a relationship. And then they actually serve as a, uh, and you say this on your White Ribbon Project website, which I'll put a link to in our show notes um, when this premieres, but um, it, it almost seems like they're, and I think you even say this, they're a, um, a symbol around which conversations can can begin. And I think it's kind of implied in what all you've been saying, but just, just to, um, you know, put a fine point on it. So, you know, is that, is that kind of what you, you the, the, it's the relationship, it becomes a, a conversation piece. And, and are you trying to create people to proselytize then and, and, you know, kind of spread the word and not necessarily maybe build their own ribbons, but is that kind of the next step after the, the ribbon yeah, you, as I, you see it? Yeah. I, I think clearly we need people who have any interest in Uh, getting involved in lung cancer advocacy to find an avenue that that they feel comfortable with. The the ribbon can be a start of that uh, just by displaying it, you know, on, in their homes uh, or in their offices, uh, you know, it, it, it will allow them to perhaps uh, speak to other individuals who see the ribbon and ask them about it. They feel more comfortable about telling their story and then it also shows them that you know what advocacy can can come as Heidi said in many different forms and they can leverage their own sort of skill sets uh and focus those on on lung cancer advocacy in a way that they feel is most effective just like i certainly have some strengths and in, in that I can apply to lung cancer advocacy that are different than Heidi's. There's certain things that she does that I'm terrible at and, 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 and wouldn't be able to do. Um, so, so, um, 
Yes, it, it is the beginning. It's the symbol mm. of lung cancer. And for us, it's also a way for them to perhaps think about how they can express their own voice in advocacy in whatever form that may be. And we're so grassroots. I mean, starting conversations is, you know, how it goes. And you're walking around with a two foot by one foot ribbon here in Colorado, we hike a lot. So we put them on our backpack and then people are like, whoa, what's that? You know, they don't think I have lung cancer because I'm not that perception, that old perception, we're mm. trying to change the perception. It's like, yeah, you want to talk? I mean, yeah, I have- And you're middle of a hike. So I mean- and yeah. I'm, Right. And <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. living with it and, and thriving with it because now there's hope. That's the other very important element that people need to understand, especially those who are afraid to get screened if they mm. do know about it. Mm. Some people say, you know, oh gosh, I'm sure I have lung cancer because, you know, of my smoking history, but I don't want to know. And it's mm. like, wow, well, you want to know because now there's more hope than there ever was. Mm -hmm. And you too may be able to live a full, you know, quality life, even with a late stage diagnosis. And people who have access to screening, who are eligible and get the referrals, they're likely to get caught early and really mm -hmm. have a very good prognosis. So let's not miss anyone. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of my later questions was about how, like, uh, as, if there are any real world examples of the white ribbon in action, but I think you painted a really nice picture mm -hmm. of hiking and just to take, almost putting it on you as a uh, a badge of honor to, and taking it out into society. It's so interesting. I love that. Yeah. Or yeah. we travel with them. I mean, I'm going to. I've seen the airplane. pictures on their website. Yeah. You've been everywhere <laughs> and back <laughs> well, again. Well, <laughs> bring them on an airplane, and sure. sometimes the flight attendants will ask you, and they'll even do a little PSA. And you, oh got my a gosh, audience yeah. of about 100 yeah. people. So, I mean, how again, cool is that? It's not novel, right? I mean, pe people in in AIDS, HIV advocacy, breast cancer advocacy movement started off with visuals, be it. Oh you know, demonstration, something just to surface the topic right. uh, into discussion because they were taboo. You know, women sure. did not want to talk about sure. having breast cancer and early on people with HIV or AIDS, again, that was a topic not to be discussed. Sure. But, uh, when you just have something that is so visual, um, then it's difficult to ignore it. And that's how we start, you know? Yeah. And I love need awareness. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it, it precedes action. Yeah, know? exactly. And you've, you've pivoted off of a sort of well understood symbol, but you've made it your own, which I think is yeah. just really cool. Yeah. So I wonder, so we've talked a lot about the stigma surrounding um, lung cancer and, uh, and I think a lot of, again, probably listeners and watch and, and watchers probably already know that stigma, but, but uh, doc, you know, Heidi and Dr. Ronda, if you could put, you know, kind of put a finer point on what the stigma is. I mean, I know because I've worked in this space, but you know, what, it, what, what do people, what are the preconceived people, notions people have of someone like the average person who has uh, lung cancer? Right. Again, while, while it is true that one of the most significant risk factors for developing lung cancer is, is, is smoking, uh, there are other risk factors and there are many people who smoke who never develop lung cancer. However, I think it's been years of institutional messaging, mm. not necessarily inappropriate at the time that the solution for lung cancer was to stop smoking. And that was really the only message out there. So I think the general public uh, over time has simply gotten the message that, you know what, um, really 
uh, smoking is the only cause of lung cancer and people who smoke in a sense are responsible for their disease. So it, it, it's, it's led to this type of victim blaming, uh. which interestingly has not seemed to occurred with opioid addictions, fortunately, mm. Right? Mm. Uh, right? We went almost directly to, hey, it's the prescribers, it's the pharmaceutical companies that, you know, really overplayed uh, their hand here and underplayed the risks. And so I think that stigma, in a sense, has made people with a history of smoking sometimes a little bit reluctant to seek um, screening uh, to some extent. And also it has made people who uh, have developed disease without a history of smoking also not willing to talk about it mm -hmm. uh, because suddenly their peers and, and other people, uh, Heidi had this experience where they, they first think, this, oh, I, I didn't know that you smoked. I saw that. That, on your that was the first yeah. question. So um, I used to get really mad when that question was asked. And then I realized, you know, health educator, primary care doc, we yeah. didn't know. So right. why should we expect the general public to know? Mm. So it's a question of education too, right? So mm -hmm. you have to give people the information. I think the other thing that's really important, because I don't want anybody to get the idea that we don't believe in, you know, saying, you know, smoking is just okay and just do it. And, you know, you don't have any risk to your health. I mean, but it needs to be an overall, it's it's not good for your heart, right? Um, it puts you at risk for other cancers. And then at the same time, let's try to normalize lung cancer. Um, you know, it seems to me the general public understands it has a concept that a cancer can spontaneously generate in any organ of our body. We don't know why, but we know we want to catch it early. But for some reason, the lungs are the only organ of the body that can only generate a cancer if it gets a tobacco product. Wow. That doesn't really sound even... Um, yeah. Logical. I mean, right. you know, it can, and we don't know why. And people say, well, there's secondhand smoke. Yeah. But people who get exposed to secondhand smoke cannot get screened. We had a high radon level in our house. No clue about what even radon, radon was. Yep, yep. That can't, people with radon exposure can't get screened unless you really advocate hard. I'll pay cash, you know, the whole thing. Um, but most people don't even know about radon. Um perhaps family history or, you know, asbestos, or we just don't know, right? right? So what's, you know, it needs to be normalized and humanized. And mm. I think we can make great progress then. Right. And we're not advocating that, um, you know, the, the people uh, who don't currently qualify, we're not advocating that, oh, they should be outreached and, and they should be screened. We're, we're just, again, trying to point out that there are other risk factors for lung cancer, and we should be pushing for better screening tests to address those and not just focus on necessarily tobacco uh, use, particularly smoking as the only risk factor. Mm. Okay. So we need to, we mm -hmm. need to think about, and particularly physicians, primary care physicians need to think about what am I going to do if I have someone who has, you know, family history, high rate on exposure, you know, lived in an area of high pollution? So, you know, uh, I'm not 
telling what they should do. I'm, I'm just saying that there, there's no guideline that's going to steer you that uh, with that, but there's there's nothing to prevent you from having an informed decision making process with with that person to decide you know what what might be the best thing to do for you. And one more thing to add in there is the primary care doc who gets a patient who you know doesn't have a smoking history at all, maybe an athletic person or average health, but it's got this chronic cough that mm. you can't seem to resolve for months. Mm. Um, what, when does that come into play? Because when I started to meet people in the lung cancer community here in Colorado, they were all significantly younger than me. They were primarily wow. women. And this is how they presented. They presented with a chronic cough that was um, given allergy meds. And when one didn't work, they switched to another, to another. Before you knew it, months went by. Then it was GERD. And then boom, somebody ends up in an emergency room, either with a seizure or coughing up blood and boom, stage four lung cancer diagnosed in an emergency room. Yeah. We're, we're not, again, there are guidelines, you know, for the evaluation of, of chronic cough. We're not saying deviate from that. We're just saying, follow them. They're, hmm. they're, they're called the chess guidelines for the evaluation of a chronic cough. And the only thing I say to primary care physicians is like, don't necessarily exclude the possibility of lung cancer just because someone has never smoked or, you know, is, is young and just follow the guidelines uh, for people who present with chronic symptoms. You know, I, I, I can say probably I, I've been guilty of that myself is that you look at someone who's young and otherwise healthy and you say, you know, uh, it's true. It's unlikely that that their symptom may be due to some life-threatening disease, but not impossible. And so follow the guidelines. Right. Don't there ignore symptoms. I'm going to cut us right there just for a minute because I just got the warning that we're almost out of time and this oh. Zoom will kick me off. Sure. <laughs> they are relentless. Um, so actually, it's great, though, because I, I'm so glad that you brought up so many topics that I was going to ask about. So you've kind of covered most of the ground. Um, I guess uh, one thing we didn't talk about is funding, but I might, if, if, if it's okay with you, when we talk about the future of the White Ribbon Project, uh, I might, what I what I also try to do a lot of times is have these videos scale, right? Um, so if, if some else wants to do a similar project, how would they do that? Um, yeah. So if we could end on maybe um, talking about uh, anybody in the audience, maybe wanting to do this themselves, uh, obviously maybe, you know, pivoting off your effort, but maybe they have their own uh, issue, medical issue that they want to raise awareness for. Uh, can you give them like a brief blue, uh, blueprint of how to start that and then maybe pivot to the future? I think that's all we're going to have time for, if that's okay. Uh, I'd love to have you guys back to build on this conversation, sure. honestly. Um, is that okay if I, if I yeah, proceed that way? we could do a series too, because there's all kinds of things I would going love that. On. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I would love that. Okay. Well, I'm going to bring us, I've been recording this whole time, but I'll cut yeah, it. Okay. Um that's so interesting. Well, I, I'm wondering for the audience members who might be listening or watching who, um, if, you know, if they want to, you know, if they want to build on your work, that's one thing. And and we'll provide um, contact information, hopefully, that maybe if they want to get in contact with you, if they want to specifically raise awareness around this specific disease. But if they want to say they want to raise awareness around a, med a different medical issue, could you pr provide maybe a first couple steps of of how they could get started with that? Uh, you know, just just reflecting back on your success. Yeah, because we were complete amateurs ourselves when we first started. So we leaned on the experience of others, other advocates. Uh, so they should find someone uh, with a similar condition who, who's been an advocate. And then um, also there are uh, a number of 
um, let's say you want to start in your own nonprofit, you can seek the help of legal firms that offer services uh, free of charge, pro bono work. Many of them have to provide that and they can assist you in filing the paperwork. And in terms of fundraising, you know, again, we leaned on the expertise of others. Uh, we get most of our funding through uh, writing for grants, you know, mm -hmm. to different institutions and companies. It's not that difficult to do. And then we don't actually do a lot of active fundraising, but uh, you can get help at, on having a website and we have a donate button that people, if they want to do small donations. So again, uh, there's a lot of resources out there for people uh, who, who want to get involved in advocacy and the best resource is actually people who are already doing it in the area that they're interested in. Yes. But if you're in an area that's like, you know, you feel there is no awareness out there, there's really not a lot to lean on. And so that's kind of where we found ourselves initially. Um, so it was surprising to me that the bigger lung cancer advocacy organizations were, there was no information about them in at least the wow. cancer center where I was at. And I didn't understand why. And I was diagnosed in 2018. So I wasn't looking for like a zoom group or whatever. I was looking for a support group in my own backyard. Um, now that's all changed, you know, so definitely look on the internet. But I think the most important thing was engaging with your medical care team, because they're, you know, they're rooting for you too. And they're doing their job to take care of you, but they're not thinking about advocacy and getting the word out because they're focused on what they do in their office. But if you let them know, look, you know, I want to see more awareness for disease X or something, then you have the backup the validation that this disease is a problem, and then maybe put your heads together about next steps. Um, for example, you know, we're in existence now almost three years, but last year um, it was only two years and I challenged my cancer center. I said, would you think about doing like a lung cancer survivor's breakfast? And they were like, wow, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. They did about 25 survivors showed up with their caregivers. So about 50 people, these were all pretty much long-term survivors. So people surviving five to 10 years, they had been going to the same cancer center all that time and had never met another lung cancer survivor. Ah, and it was like, wow, key. what a way to grow the community. For so, sure. you know, well, building ribbons for us is how we build community. People come over and do that. But also, gosh, you're getting care from the same team of people. You should know each other. Yeah, and, and there's no HIPAA being violated then. You know, it's an event and challenge your cancer centers to have a little event. Excellent. So. Yeah. And speaking of uh, uh, building a community networking, I'm going to put a, a, a link again to, to the White Ribbon Project website and, and, and send people there to get more information. And we'll have you guys hopefully back on this program to, to build on all this very interesting information. I also want to let our viewers know that if you have any ideas for future show topics, please let us know on Twitter at, at RadiologyACR. And please do use the hashtag ACR Bulletin Podcast. And I also invite you to check out all of our past episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and please be sure to subscribe to ACR's YouTube channel to see latest episodes. And, and please do hit that like button if you found today's uh, video valuable. Thank you very much, folks. We really appreciate it. We'll have you back real soon. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank Ab you. Absolutely. Best of luck to you. And uh, thank you to our listeners. This has been the ACR Bulletin Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>